Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Well, today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16, if you want to turn there. And as you're turning there, I'd like to just have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you uh, for the word of God that is so true and leads us. We don't want to impose our thoughts on it. So I pray that you would fill my mind and mouth with your words, and I pray that you would fill our ears and our hearts with what you want us to do and how you want us to respond. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember seeing a bumper sticker that said, Don't follow me, I'm lost too. That was probably before the era of smartphones and GPS services because people don't get lost that often anymore. But who are you following? And are they really on the right track or could they be lost in this life as well? Who does the world follow as their examples? Sports heroes, movie stars, uh, politicians. But do you really know how they're living or are we looking at a facade, a public appearance instead of the real person and the real life? When you delve into the lives of politicians, of some athletes and some movie stars, many movie stars, we really find a big mess, don't we? And occasionally that surfaces in the news and we realize that that's not really the kind of person I want to follow or my children to follow either. They're not really living the kind of life that I want to live. So where do we find real life? And what makes up life? It's different for people. Uh, if, If I had to define my life apart from Jesus, I would say fishing is my life. Outdoors, really. Hunting, fishing is my life. I just love the outdoors. That's where I get peace and contentment. and I just enjoy that. But for some, it's, uh, it, it could be their business. They're really into, the, into business and they just love it. Or their own family, which we all should have as a priority. Or their church is their life. The foot, football. I mean, anything. Making money, some hobby, some goal, some success could define their life. So what really is life for you? And if you define your life in these kind of terms, what happens when the business goes bankrupt or the marriage splits or the children rebel or, God forbid, die? Then how would you define life? What is life if the money is gone? If your physical health is gone so you cannot participate in your favorite hobby, anymore. Is that really how we want to define life? Jesus addresses that question, I think, in response to some of something he was trying to teach his disciples. And it's in chapter 16, just to paint the context, we have, um, first we need to know and understand what a disciple is, which I know you do. Uh, A disciple is a learner, I like to use the word apprentice, somebody who learns alongside someone else until they become like their master. That's how it's defined in the scriptures. Uh, Matthew 10, 25, it's enough that a servant becomes like his master or a disciple becomes like his master. So it's a position of learning. It's from the word that comes, that means to learn. 
And um, as you know, we need to learn to distinguish between disciples and those who are Christians and then go on to be disciples. Sometimes it happens instantaneously. Sometimes it takes a period of time, maybe even years, to incubate until a person is fully committed. And I've, I've kind of used an A truth, B truth model in my book that uh, you can be convinced that Jesus is your Savior, but not necessarily totally committed to him. And that may come later. So we're talking about salvation and then discipleship as something distinct, but certainly related. You can't be a disciple unless you're saved, of course. We're talking about the distinction between justification that saves us eternally and sanctification that is a process of growth. Coming in biblical language, coming to Christ is an evangelistic appeal to become a saved person, to have eternal life. Coming after or following Christ is biblical language for being a disciple. Faith in Christ is what gets us eternal life. Faithfulness to Christ is what makes us a disciple and earns us rewards along that way. Uh, as you know, salvation is an instantaneous event, but discipleship can be a lifetime process. And salvation is absolutely free to us. Discipleship is costly to us. There's a price to be paid, and that's what we're going to look at today. So if you know this chart and you know these distinctions, uh, you've paid for your ticket here. It's worth the trip. And so I emphasize this wherever I go. Now, in this context, uh, Peter makes a confession because Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say you're a prophet. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, as always the spokesman for the group, says in uh, chapter 16, verse 16, he says, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So he recognized that he was the Christ, the Messiah. And there's a lot of uh, import in that world, word, but generally the impression of those in the first century was that the Christ or the Messiah would be the one who would come and deliver Israel, not so much spiritually as more politically. And he would deliver them from the Romans and give them their freedom that they deserved as a nation. But he also recognized uh, that Jesus was the son of the living God, that he uh, was a divine person. And so with that confession, Jesus says, uh, uh, Peter, you know, you're the rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church, based on the fact that Jesus is Lord. That's the foundation of the church. And then he goes on, and in verse 21 he foretells his death and his resurrection. And it says from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, this is where he first began to explain this to him, that he has to suffer and die. Must have been quite an eye-opener to disciples who thought, well, you're the Christ, you're the victor, you're the conqueror, you're, going to, you're the liberator. And you're talking about suffering and dying? And it, must, it didn't click with them. And in fact, Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him and said, uh, far be it, Lord, that you, this happened to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. You're not mindful of the things of God but the things of men. You're not thinking in God, terms of God's program. You're thinking in, from a human perspective that I'm here for 
just simply as a political liberator, basically. They didn't understand the import of his, importance of his death and his resurrection. So having laid that groundwork, Jesus explained that he has to follow a very difficult path that leads to suffering and death. He then begins to teach his disciples. And he says to them in verse 24, if anyone desires to come after me, now you see what that means now, he's going to suffer and die. If anyone wants to follow me there, he's using discipleship language, come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. There are three requirements here to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. First, he says, you must deny yourself. What does that mean? Deny yourself basically means to say no to our own desires so that we can say yes to God. Now, our own desires that we deny may be sinful desires that we should deny, but they could also be good things. Sometimes we have to give up good things, good goals, in order to follow Jesus Christ. And we deny ourselves not just uh, in, in an ascetic way, where someone goes and hibernates in a monastery to separate themselves from the world and deny themselves any worldly pleasure. He's not, Jesus isn't talking about that, but he's just talking about sacrificing our own desires in order to fulfill God's will for our lives. We might give up sin, but we might also give up something that's good. We might give up a right or privilege that we have. Like the Apostle Paul, when he went to Corinth and ministered there, he argues in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, you know, uh, I don't take any money from you, but then he argues about 10 different reasons he should be paid as an apostle and for what he's doing. And he, he uses all these arguments. We won't go into them, but he argues it. But he says, but I don't want a penny from you. I don't want anybody to accuse me here of, of being here for mercenary reasons. He gave up the right to compensation to live off the gospel because he was serving God's will by being there and teaching them. Christians are sometimes asked to give up their right, for example, to sue one another. You have every legal right to sue a person or another Christian, but you may give up that right for the sake of being a good witness for Jesus Christ and to show some grace or kindness or mercy to someone. Christians may give up a certain luxury in order to give more to the Lord's work. Maybe instead of buying that luxurious car, downgrade one step so that there's a little bit left over or a little bit more, let's put it that way, to serve the Lord uh, with your giving. Um, you may be right in an argument, but you may just not press that argument to the point of embarrassing another person. You give up your right to make your point in a, in a very strong way. You might drive a car that's a little bit older so that you can also give to the Lord. There's many ways that we might be asked to deny ourselves in order to follow God's will for our lives. The second requirement to become a disciple, he says, is to take up your cross. See, Jesus was saying to them, I'm going to be taking up my cross. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross. Now, at hearing this, I imagine that the disciples shuddered because they knew what Jesus was referring to. Crucifixion. They saw along the roadside the way the Romans would crucify people and hang them on a cross to be exposed for days and to die of exposure, starvation, and thirst. 
and ultimately suffocation because their strength would give out and they would begin to sag and you can't breathe when your arms are stretched up like that. It was a terrible, excruciating, the most cruel death there was. In essence, what Jesus was saying to them, he says, if you want to follow me, bring your own bullet. Carry your own cross. Jesus carried his cross through the streets of Jerusalem to his death. And he's telling his disciples that they need to be willing to carry their own cross. What did he mean? Be willing to suffer whatever God asks you to suffer. He's not asking probably you and me, I don't think, to be crucified literally. He may not even be asking you and I to give our lives, but he's saying, I think, be willing to. Or be willing to be embarrassed in front of your friends for taking a stand for him. Or be willing to lose a promotion or even your job because of your witness for Jesus Christ, as one of my friends did, who refused to lie about the software product they were selling, and so he lost his job. Be willing to sit at a different lunch table from the popular crowd because they shun you as a Christian in your school. Join the death march is what Jesus was saying. Be willing to suffer as I'm going to suffer for you. In the early days of uh, the modern missionary movement, James Calvert was going to the Fiji Islands and the captain of the ship tried to dissuade him. He said, you know, those people are cannibals. They eat, they'll eat you. They'll kill your whole, your whole team. James Calvert said, we died before we came. And that's the attitude they had. I'm reading a book right now called God's Generals. And it's uh, a collection of biographical accounts of missionaries in the missionary movement. And uh, it's amazing to me what these people, they left their countries they left England, uh, America, with the idea that they may never see it again. They lost their children. Many of them lost their children at birth or in their first months. Many of them died in their 20s, even uh, from tropical diseases, malaria, dysentery, uh, and, and things like that. I can't believe what they went through. I don't think I'm willing to do that. I don't think I, I'm there yet. But they left it all behind. They denied themselves everything in life that people would want to have to suffer for the Lord. I recommend the book to you. It's not a, it, it doesn't go really in depth in all the details of each person, but enough to really help you appreciate these people who brought the gospel around the world. So are we willing to suffer ridicule for being a Christian or suffer ostracism by our friends or family? for the gospel's sake, for Jesus' sake. I uh, was told about one, you know this uh, thing they do at the schools at the beginning of the school year called See You at the Pole? You ever heard of that? Yeah. You know that originated in Burleson. A friend of mine uh, started that, and uh, now it's all over the country. It's a big deal. Uh, but I heard one story about one school had a See You at the Pole meeting, and only one girl showed up. She showed up all by herself. She was willing to take that stand for Jesus Christ. I also heard later after I had left the church about one of my former youth, because I was a youth pastor in this church. He had joined the army, and he had enlisted in officer's school. And on the final exam day, an officer got up in his face, and he said, soldier, curse God. And John said, sir, 
this soldier will not curse God, sir. He says, soldier, I'm telling you, curse God. John said the same thing. I will not curse God. I'm giving you one last chance, soldier. Curse God. Sir, this soldier will not curse God. The officer said, good job, soldier. He went on to become lieutenant and get all the rewards that go with being an officer in the army because he stood firm. He didn't deny the Lord. We're asked to sometimes suffer for Jesus Christ. And then he says, follow me. Follow him. Now he says, I'm going to the cross. Are you going to follow me there? I think it probably encompasses more than the idea of the cross, but just follow my purpose for life. When we see that phrase, follow me, uh, early in the disciples' life, like in Mark 1 and Matthew 4, it was, follow me and I will do what? I will make you fishers of men. Telling them that their purpose in life from now on is going to be redirected from fishing for fish, God forbid for my life, but to fishing for men. There's a higher purpose in life. And we do it in many ways, in many facets. We contribute in different ways, but ultimately everything we do needs to keep that in our focus that we're fishing for men, we're spreading the message, we're making disciples around the world. Submit to God's purpose for your life, I think, is basically what he's saying. <clears throat> and live a life obedient to him and follow where he leads you. See yourself as a representative, an ambassador, a servant of Jesus Christ. Make it your determination to make disciples, to win people to Christ and to duplicate uh, Christ in them. As we've heard so many times, disciples who have come from this particular ministry here. And so life takes on a different meaning when we follow Jesus Christ. We're no longer following our own worldly ambitions or goals. We're following his purpose for our life. You know, us fishermen have... Uh, a good excuse for being on the water. We say a bad day fishing is better than a good day at work. And when you understand Jesus and follow him, then no matter what kind of day you have at work, if you see your purpose at work or at school or at home or wherever you find yourself, if you see your purpose is to be a witness for Jesus Christ, it's always a good day. No matter how your work is going, you can always be a witness for Jesus, right? So a bad day fishing is better than a good day at work. One commentator, when he looked at these three conditions for becoming a disciple, said, it's as if Jesus says to his disciples, pack your bags, deny yourself, say goodbye, take up your cross, and get on the bus, follow me. And this word is something that is not just to Jesus' disciples, but all who want to be called disciples, so it's for all of us. Jesus denied himself. As he looked to the cross, he denied himself the glories of heaven, the comforts of heaven, to come to this earth and to suffer great pain and agony on the cross for us. He followed God's purpose, and he's asking us to do the same thing. Well, Jesus gives him an explanation in the next verses, and it starts with the word for, so he's explaining why they might want to do this. There are three reasons to become a disciple here. And it has to do with their motivation and their reward that follows. First of all, he says, you will find true life. He says this, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Now, you notice the word save is being used here. Let's talk a second about that word save in its verb and noun form. Um, automatically, Christians tend to read that word or people tend to read that word and think of eternal salvation. But the truth is the word save is only used of eternal salvation about 36% of the time in the New Testament. It can mean, you know, being saved from drowning or being saved from illness. There's a lot of different uses for the word, save from your enemies, save from some kind of trouble. The basic meaning of the word is to be delivered from something undesirable. And of course, it does mean to be delivered from eternal condemnation. But that's only 36% of the time. So we shouldn't automatically read in here that Jesus is telling his disciples how to be saved, right? Because they're already saved. He's telling them how to be disciples and why they should be disciples. And he's telling them that they can gain by giving. If you want to save your life, if you want to go for all the things that this world has to offer, thinking that you will gain more money, gain more popularity, gain more success, gain more fame, uh, gain more relationship, whatever you're looking for in life that you think will make you happy, you'll lose it. You'll lose what life really is. But if you want to lose your life for my sake, you will find it. Now, that causes us to ask the question about some of these other words. To save means to be preserve something or deliver something. And the word life here is the word suke, and we're going to run into it again in the next verse. So he's talking about if you want to save what is the essence of life or what you think will make you happy in life, you're really going to lose what really is life, if I could paraphrase it. Now that word lose is a word that's never used of eternal destruction. So he's not talking here about the contrast between heaven and hell or the lake of fire eternal condemnation, and losing it that way, which is how many people read this passage, especially the next passage. So let's go on and look at that one. In the next passage, he gives another reason that they should be disciples is so that they will not be fooled by substitutes. He says, for whatever, what profit is it for a man if he gains the whole world, everything he really wants that this world has to offer, and loses, there's that word, his own soul. Or what would a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, first of all, let's make this observation. This word soul, it's the same word, suke. It's the word that was used in the verse above life. For the life of me, I don't know why some translators change the translation from life to soul. And it, I think the reason is because they think Jesus is talking about eternal salvation here. And we use this phrase, save your soul of salvation. It's a popular phrase, you know, in, in, in Christian speak, in church, and church speak. We talk about saving souls. Truth is, when that phrase, save your soul, appears in the New Testament, I, I think several times, three times, I think, it's not talking ever about gaining eternal salvation. It's talking about delivering your present life from useful, uselessness or wastefulness. So the word here, soul, is the very same word translated life in the verse above. If you think you can gain the whole world, what profit is it if you really lose the life that you're looking for? You're losing what you think is life. Or what would a man give in exchange for his soul? What can you give in exchange for what is really life? It's, you can't put a price tag on it. 
And the word lose here again is to suffer loss, damage, or injury. It's never used of eternal condemnation. So he's not talking about the contrast between heaven and hell to his disciples who are saved. He's telling them how they can have true life and not be fooled by the the substitutionary satisfaction and joy that this world offers with its things and its whole sham of success and popularity and fame and all the things that people crave so much and literally sacrifice their lives for what they think is living but is not. This word, what does it profit, actually uses language from uh, the accounting language. It's as if he's tabulating here on on a balance sheet. And if we put on one column, all the things that we think are good, uh, that make life, and we can, we can put money, we can put uh, your home, we can put uh, uh, your, even your family, we can put in the intangible things like fame or success or authority that you might gain in this life. And then you put in the other column, true life. True life. Which would you rather have? Remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If Jesus is the life, then what is all this stuff? This stuff is what Jesus would call loss. If we're seeking to find life here, it's in the other column. It's Jesus that we need and that we should want. And what can we give for that? So many people are looking for life in all the wrong places. And they don't realize that one day they will meet their maker, who's the originator and creator of life, and find out they were climbing up the wrong ladder, on the, leaning against the wrong wall, like the rich fool, the parable of the rich fool who was prospering and said, I'm going to build bigger and better barns. And the Lord says to him, you fool, this day your soul is going to be required of you. Your life is going to be required of you. It's like you've heard many stories of people being stranded at sea and being tempted, surrounded by, who was it that wrote the poem? Um, Yeah, water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. Is that Tennyson? Water, water everywhere. But some people who are stranded at sea, they give in to the temptation to drink that water. Because there's so much of it, it looks so good, they can't stand the temptation, they drink it, and they drink it, and it shuts down their kidneys, and they die. So that which looks promising to us can be deceptive. It's not a substitute for what really, what is really life. And then the third reason to become a disciple, he says, they will be rewarded. In verse 27, he says, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, And then he will reward each according to his works. He will reward each according to his works. Kind of been a theme for this conference, hasn't it? Jesus Christ, when he comes with his angels, speaking of his uh, uh, sudden appearance at the rapture, when rewards will be distributed at the judgment seat of Christ, and we will be rewarded according to our works. He's telling his disciples, you give up everything you'll gain. Be willing to die, you'll live. Be willing to suffer loss, 
you'll find life. You'll find reward in the end. I didn't write down verse the, the, the full uh, text here, so let me read, read it to you. He'll be recorded according to his works. And assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not see death till, they, till the Son of Man comes, is coming in his kingdom. I think that might refer to the transfiguration in the very next account in chapter 17. Some of the disciples won't die until they see an example of Jesus in his kingdom with Elijah and Moses there glorified as an affirmation that there is a future and a kingdom waiting for them where they will enjoy that reward. So, a reward is waiting for those who are willing to pay the price to be disciples, to deny themselves, be willing to suffer, and follow Jesus' will wherever it leads them. The Bible also teaches that there are those who will be ashamed at his coming when, when they are not prepared or have not lived a, a, a life worthy of the Lord. That word uh, shamed is used in the New Testament always for believers, never for unbelievers. Unbelievers have nothing to be ashamed of before the Lord because they're sinners to begin with. But we who are believers who know better who have experienced God's grace, if we don't live according to that grace, then we will be ashamed because we have a heavenly father. If I go to a restaurant and I see kids running around misbehaving, crawling under tables and so forth, I'm not ashamed. I'm irritated, but I'm not ashamed of them. They're not my kids. But if they were my kids, I'd be ashamed of them. So, it, in, uh, I'm saying that because in the Mark account of this incident, he talks about those who will not confess his name and he will deny them before the Father. He's not talking there about salvation. He's talking there about being commended before the Father. When we express shame or a refusal to identify with Jesus Christ, it's as if we're siding with his enemies and saying it's okay that Jesus suffers. It's okay that Jesus is crucified. We side with his enemies. But shame implies relationship and responsibility. And we should not be ashamed of him because we have a relationship and responsibility. William Kelly was a brilliant Christian scholar in England, and he gained quite a reputation, and Trinity College was trying to get him to come and teach there, and he was not interested in doing that. He wanted to serve the Lord in a different way, and they said to him, but Mr. Kelly, aren't you interested in making a name for yourself in this world? And he said, which world? And so he turned his back on the opportunity to make a name for himself at Trinity College. Have you found life? We'll get there. Have you found life? The life you, you save, well, we'll get there. Let me, let me tell you this story. You've heard of Aaron Ralston, perhaps. If you saw the movie 127 Hours, 
James Franco playing Aaron Ralston. Aaron Ralston's 27 years old in 2003. He climbed down in, in Blue, uh, Blue Man, I think it's called Blue Man Canyon, southeastern Utah. He climbed down into one of those narrow canyons, about three feet wide, and he climbed over an 800-pound boulder, which shifted slightly and pinned his right hand to the wall. He could not get, he tried everything he could for three days to release himself. He could not get out of that. No one was there to rescue him. After three days, he realized what he had to do. He took out a cheap, dull knife that he got somewhere for free as a gift, you know, for subscribing to something. One of those multi-tool knives that wouldn't cut anything. And he began to saw away at his flesh. It took him two days to saw down to the bone. He used his shorts as a tourniquet to keep the stem the blood flow. But on that fifth day, he realized the only way he was going to get free was to do what? He had to break the bone. So he braced himself. He torqued himself. Uh, he torqued his body as best he could, got in position, and then snapped the bone close to his wrist that was pinned. But he wasn't free yet. You know what he had to do is he had to stretch his arm out and be able to cut through the flesh and that nerve that's running up your arm. With excruciating pain, he blacked out, but he woke up and he was free. The story resolves pretty well because he managed to climb out of the canyon. He was a mountain climber, concert pianist. Uh, he's climbed every 14,000 peak in, in, uh, in the winter in the United States, even after this incident. But anyway, he, so he climbed up. He rappelled down a 60-foot wall and began a six-mile hike out of there, ran into some horrified Dutch hikers, and finally found safety. Aren't you glad you had lunch already? Aaron Ralston was asked, he says, how do you feel about losing your arm? He says, I didn't lose an arm, I gained my life. Sometimes you have to give up something that's important to find true life. That was his point. And that's the point that Jesus, I think, is teaching. The life you save is the life that you lose. The life you give away is the life that you gain. We can't outgive God. You give him your life, you think he's going to put you on a bread and water diet, your life is going to become richer and deeper and fuller than you can ever imagine. I can't imagine if I had gone my own way at the age of 19 instead of coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't imagine what I would, I never would have been able to imagine what I missed out on. I've been around the world so many times I don't even keep count. I've, I've seen the most wonderful people in the world, had the most wonderful experiences in the world, have the most wonderful family in the world. God has blessed me so much in spite of my shortcomings, all by his grace. As much as I give to him, I can't outgive him. And then someone once said something that really res resonated with me. When life ceases to be the issue, life becomes the reality. You see what's being said? When life ceases to be the issue, when you stop looking to try to enrich your life with the things of this world, then you'll experience the reality of life. And the reality of life is the one who created life, Jesus Christ. And he becomes your life. For me to live as Christ, Paul said.
Now, this kind of message doesn't register with everyone who hears it. Some will try to figure out, continue to try to figure out how to get that big break, how to win the jackpot, how to get the promotion, and they'll sacrifice everything in order to do that, looking for the right angle, the right words, the right business, whatever. They think it'll complete their life and make them full. They only could find the right person. They only could find the right job. And they keep trying instead of trusting. But take Jesus' word for it. You can't outgive him. And if you give him your life in full surrender, he'll give it back to you, full and overflowing. That's been my experience. If God is the author and giver of life, it's futile to look somewhere else for it. It's like trying to make music without notes or paint without colors or play soccer without a ball. Jesus is life. We're not going to find it anywhere else. Not true life. And when we lose our life, it, there will be things that we sacrifice that we may miss out on, but it'll only be for a short time because Jesus said he's coming with his reward that will make all things full and right. I have a quote here, quoted by Philip Yancey, by a man named Frederick Bucher. Let me read this for you. Inspection stickers used to have printed, this is car inspection stickers, used to have printed it on the back, drive carefully, the life you save may be your own. That is the wisdom of men in a nutshell. What God says, on the other hand, is, the life you save is the life you lose. In other words, the life you clutch, hoard, guard, and play safe with is in the end a life worth little to anybody, including yourself, and only a life given away for love's sake is a life worth living. To bring this point home, God shows us a man who gave his life away to the extent of dying a national disgrace without a penny in the bank or a friend to his name. In terms of man's wisdom, he was a perfect fool. And anybody who thinks he can follow him without making the same kind of fool of himself is laboring under not a cross, but a delusion. To follow Jesus may make a fool of you. But Jesus says there's, he's coming with a reward for those who do. So the challenge is, for those of us who know the Lord, to become a disciple and to give him our lives. Well, that kind of encompasses everything, everything that we are, everything that we have, everything that we want to be. That's what life is, and we give that to him, and his promise is that he'll give it back. So we're talking here about us giving our lives to God, but when we talk about eternal salvation, we're talking about him giving his life for us. That's the supreme example. And there may be some who hear, are hearing me in my voice today who don't really appreciate the fact that God did give himself for us. He took on a body of flesh and he died an excruciating death on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins that we have committed. Because in God's eyes, justice needed to be fulfilled. And a holy God required a death to satisfy his justice. But then Jesus rose from the dead as finally the conqueror and the victor over death. And he can promise us eternal life to anyone who believes in him as Savior. So if anyone's hearing me today or in a recording, 
the challenge is, have you believed in Jesus as your Savior, the one who gave everything for you so that you can have what is really life? The one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Let me close in prayer. Now, Father, I just would pray and thank you for the challenge before us, a challenge that really does push us to our limits to think that our most cherished possessions, our most cherished goals, our most cherished ambitions should be laid on the altar and given to you. But your assurance is that you'll give it back to us. True life, a relationship with life itself, Jesus Christ. And for those who might doubt whether they have this life or not, I pray that today would be their final day of doubting as they trust in him as Savior and believe in him for that eternal life. So, Lord, thank you for the challenge. Thank you for these words. Thank you for helping me speak as best I could. Thank you for helping us listen, take it to heart. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.